Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Thank you, Pastor Murray, and good afternoon, brethren, once again. Uh, Turn with me to Romans 6. We'll begin there. And as I mentioned um, earlier, clearly we see the Trinitarian doctrine is false doctrine. It doesn't come from the Bible. It's uh, philosophical musings from speculative people. In fact, I heard somebody describe the council at Nicaea as uh, disputatious people disputing disputable things. (laughs) I think that's a good summary of uh, the Council of Nicaea. So we know that we can reject Trinitarianism. But there are other views of the Godhead. One is Unitarianism, and the other is Binitarianism, sometimes called Twinitarianism. And I want to show that these concepts are also wrong. So Arius was a Unitarian. He believed that there is only one God, and that Christ is not God. Christ was a created being. There was a time when he was not. And then God created him. The Binitarians believe that the Godhead is made up of two beings, God and Christ. And they're equal beings. And I want to show that this is also not correct. So let's start with Unitarianism. And then we'll show what the true nature of the Godhead is. It's essential for us to understand that Christ is God. We just, we just sang the song that without Christ's divinity there is no salvation for us. Our salvation depends on Christ's divinity. Romans 6 and verse 23 shows that we are all under a death sentence. Romans 6 verse 23 says the wages of sin is death. In other words if there's anybody in this room that has sinned then we have earned the death sentence. And there's a death sentence hanging over our head. Fortunately, there's a but. So even though we have earned the death sentence, there is a but. The gift of God, it's a a gift, is eternal life. We don't have to die. We can live forever and ever and ever. The song Amazing Grace we were singing, you know, 10,000 years from now we will still be living and living for another 10,000 years after that. And it's a gift. But it is is a gift through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no other way for us to have eternal life except through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, the Unitarian belief, again, Arius was not the only Unitarian, but he was a Unitarian, that there is only one God, And that Jesus Christ was a nice man, was a perfect man, but he was just a man. Let's go to Deuteronomy 19. And what we'll do, you know, this morning or earlier today, we were looking historically, we were looking at the history. Today it's scriptures, or this afternoon it's scripture. Let's just go through the scripture and see what does the scripture say. So Deuteronomy 19, so we'll be be flipping pages quite a bit. Deuteronomy 19, there's a principle here in verse 21. 
This is speaking about uh, someone who brings a false witness against a brother. It says in verse 21, Your eye shall not pity. Do not spare. You have to carry out judgment here. Your eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This is the law. So the restoration, it, there's an equality here. If you took somebody's life, you lose your life. Life for life. So this destroys the Unitarian argument that Jesus Christ was just a man. A perfect man. He lived a sinless life. Well, great. One of us can claim that life for our own. So rather than me having to give up my life, I'll point to Christ and say, take his life instead. Now his life is gone and I get to live because the wages I've earned is, is sin, is death. Christ fulfills that for me. Now the rest of you, you'll have to work it out on your own because life for life. The only way we can all have a claim to eternal life is if somehow Christ's life is worth more than all of our lives put together. And that can only be the case when we understand that Christ is the creator. The scriptures say so. He is God. He is the creator. He created all of our lives and he was willing to sacrifice his life for us. So now every single one of us and all of our brethren and all of our ancestors can all claim his life for our own. John 1. Let's go to John 1 now. John 1, beginning in verse 1, a scripture we're very familiar with. In fact, somebody was quoting it earlier today. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning. So let's go right back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. So this notion that Arius taught that there was a time when he was not, it doesn't come from the scripture. The scripture says from the very beginning, as far back as you go, was the Word, the Logos. And the Logos was with God. So from the very beginning, these two coexisted. Not only was he with God, he was God. So the Logos is from the beginning, he was with God, he was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. He is the creator. He made everything. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lights every man that comes into the world. He, Christ, God, the Word, the Logos, was in the world. And the world was made by him. We can't get around these scriptures. He made the world and he was in the world. The world was made by him and he was in it. Yet the world knew him not. He came unto his own. Again, we read that scripture earlier. The Canaanite woman came to him and he ignored her. She pleaded with him and he said, I've come for Israel. So he came to his own, meaning Israel, but his own received him not. But as many as have received him 
To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word, the Logos, Christ, was made flesh. Can't get around this. The, the Greek philosophers can't, had to struggle with this, that the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. You know, in another place, John says, anyone who denies that Christ has come into the flesh is Antichrist. And he was pointing squarely at the Greeks because their philosophy couldn't handle this. And so they began teaching that it wasn't Christ on the cross, it was a, a hologram. Or it was all kinds of different philosophies that they had to try to answer the question, how on earth could Christ come in the flesh? And John says, as he's nearing the end of his life, anyone who denies that God has come into the flesh is Antichrist. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Significant phrase. Because the Unitarians are going to argue that God, Christ, was the Son of God. And they're going to point to Adam and say, Adam was the son of God. Israel was the son of God. So God has many sons. And we're going to say, hold it right there. God has only one begotten son. He gave his only begotten son. There are no other begotten sons. And when he spoke to the Jews and said, I am the son of God, they didn't say, yeah, yeah, that's all right. God has, Israel is the son of God. Adam was the son of God. The angels are called the son of God. They were upset. And they said, how can you, being a man, call yourself the Son of God? Because they understood what it meant when he said, I'm the Son of God. Full of grace and truth. Okay. John 1.18 No man, no man, there's no exception here. This, this includes everybody, including Israel. So God says, of all the families of the earth, you only have I known. And we have to reconcile that with this scripture that says, nobody has seen God at any time. But we can read the scriptures and we can see where different men of God, different Hebrews, have interacted with God, have even said that they've seen God. And we have to reconcile that with this scripture that says, nobody at any time has seen God. The only begotten Son, again, there's only one, which is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared the Father. In other words, Israel interacted with God, but not with the Father. Christ came to reveal the Father. So the relationship that the Hebrews had with God was with Yahweh. It wasn't with the Father. And Christ, as Yahweh, came... And one of his missions was to declare the Father. Because nobody saw the Father at any time. They did not know the Father. So it's not that they didn't know Christ. They were actually worshipping Yahweh. Who they didn't know is the Father. John 10. John 10 and verse 31 You know, we said earlier, the Jews were monotheistic. They understood and they, were, they suffered severely 
for playing with polytheism. They dabbled in it. They were with the people of the land and they adopted these gods. And they were punished severely. As a result of that, when they came out of captivity, so the northern tribes were destroyed completely for their idolatry. But Judah was taken into captivity. And when they came out of captivity, two things they're never accused of again. Breaking the Sabbath, because that was why they went into captivity, and idolatry. They don't mess with these things. They put a hedge around the Sabbath, and they made sure we only worship one God. So now, we expect, if, if the Holy Spirit is God, somebody has to explain that to the Jews. And there's going to be a reaction. There's no, no discussion of the Holy Spirit. But, there's a problem with Christ. And here in John 10 and verse 31, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. This, is serious. this man needs to die. The things that he is speaking are blasphemous. And we need to put him to death. Jesus answered and said, look, I've done a lot of good work. Uh, many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? So I, I, I've done well around you. I've done good things. I've helped people. Why do you want to stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we stone you not, but for blasphemy. We don't mess around. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you're coming along with another teaching that is blasphemy. And we're going to stop it right here, right now. We do not stone you for a good work, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Are you crazy? You're just a man, and you're making yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? Let's look at the scriptures and, and show, read the scripture for me. And doesn't it say, you are gods? Scripture says that in Psalms. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, you blaspheme because I say I am the Son of God. So, when Christ said, I'm the Son of God, they didn't say, okay, Adam was the Son of God. Pretty cool. No problem. We're all the sons of God. Israel's the Son of God. They said, you, being a man, are calling yourself God. And he said, you're upset because I say I'm the Son of God? They understood. He's saying, I am begotten. I am the begotten Son of God. So, you know, God is God, and I'm his Son. And they wanted to put him to death for this. So we see now the, the um, collision between Christ's teaching and the Jewish paradigm. Just as we saw earlier, the collision between Paul's teaching and the Greek paradigm. So, so the Greeks have a paradigm that's philosophical, and they can't get their head around the teaching of Christ and Paul. And the Jews have a paradigm, and they can't get their head around the gospel. If I do not the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do, though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. This is Christ's plain teaching. The Father's in me and I'm in him. I'm his begotten Son. 
now. Unitarians are going to argue that, you know, he's, he's another Adam, he's a man, but the scripture is pretty clear. The word was with God, was with him from the beginning, and here Christ is confirming that. But let's go to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. In verse 5, Then said I, this is Isaiah speaking, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And we just read, No man has seen God at any time. And Isaiah is saying, I'm undone. I'm in trouble. I'm a man of, I'm a sinful man, and I've just seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, Christ said I came to reveal the Father. No man has seen the Father at any time. So when you're saying you're seeing God, you're seeing Yahweh. Now, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us. Who will go for us? More than one. So you've seen me, but who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. So, so clearly, Isaiah has a relationship with God, but God is saying it's not only me. It's at least one other person. Because I'm, I'm wondering who's going to go for us and represent us. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 8. First Corinthians 8 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul says this, For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many. So they're in a, a polytheistic culture. And he's saying there's lots of gods, lots of lords. But to us, there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. Jesus Christ created everything. So there's one God the Father and one Lord by whom are all things and we by him. So Paul is saying it very clearly here. There's God the Father and there's the Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things. This Lord, the word Lord, is the Greek word kurios. Kurios. When Paul taught the Gentiles, he taught exclusively from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. The word for Yahweh, the Hebrew word Yahweh, in the Septuagint is kurios. So anywhere you see Yahweh in the Septuagint, replace it with kurios. And Paul is telling the brethren here, there's one Yahweh. Um, so there's one, there's one Yahweh, and Yahweh is Jesus Christ. Now, let's put a finer point on this by going to Isaiah 45. 
Isaiah 45. There's the Father and there's Yahweh. Isaiah 45, verse 21. Tell you and bring them near. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, Yahweh? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. So very clearly saying, you have a relationship with me, no one else. Look unto me and be you saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself. The word is gone out from my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. So here Yahweh is speaking. And he says in verse 22, I am God. I am God. So in the, in the Greek you would see Curious and Theos. I'm Curious, Yahweh, and I'm Theos, God. And besides me there's none else. So we have to reconcile this now with the fact that very clearly the word was with God and the word was God. He says here in verse 23, I've sworn by myself that unto me Every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear. Now let's see Philippians 2, where, where this scripture is quoted in the New Testament. Philippians 2. So we are seeing here that Jesus Christ actually said it, I and my Father are one. We are one. Philippians 2 and verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he was in the form of God from the beginning. And being in the form of God, this is the way he thought. He didn't think it robbery, to be equal with God, to be in the Godhead. He didn't, it wasn't something that he grasped onto and coveted and, and had to have. For our sake, the wages of sin is death, for our sake he was willing to leave the Godhead, come to earth as a human being, and shed his blood so that we can be saved. That was his desire. His desire was for us, not for himself, to stay in the form of God. Instead, verse 7, he made himself of no reputation. So this is God. This is the contrast. This is God making himself of no reputation. So if God can make himself of no reputation, can this mind be in you? You know, Can you and I get off our high horses and put down our ego and humble ourselves? Because Christ did this. From the Godhead came to earth humbled himself. No reputation. You would look at him and wouldn't know who he is. And he took upon him, so he had the form of God, but he took him for, upon him the form of a slave and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the form and fashion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And it's because of his death 
that we have salvation. So he came and he was determined. I am going to die for mankind. Verse 9. Because of this, God has highly exalted him. So he humbled himself. This is the mind that he had. He gave everything up. And because of this, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, and this is now recalling the scripture in Isaiah, and if he's, you know, when he's speaking this, the brethren who know the scriptures know this is a calling back to Isaiah, where, where God says, I swear by myself that every knee will bow to me. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that means worship. Every knee Every being will worship Christ. God says, I swear by myself, every knee will bow to me. I am God. There is no other. And God says, because of the humility of Christ, he has exalted him to the point where everybody will worship him. Revelation, compare this to Revelation 19. Revelation 19 where John, on the Isle of Patmos, has this vision and records it for us in the book of Revelation. And in verse 10 he says this, an angel has interacted with him, and he says here in verse 10, and I fell at his feet to worship him. So this angel obviously was very glorious, and John knew he was interacting with someone supernatural. And he fell at the angel's feet to worship him. And he said to me, "Uh uh-oh, stop, don't do this. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Don't bow your knee to me. I'm I'm just a fellow servant. You worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So very clearly here, uh, worshiping anybody other than God is forbidden. And the angel makes this clear to John. Don't worship me. Worship God. And yet God says, every knee will bow to Jesus. Everybody will worship Jesus. Go back to verse one, uh, chapter 1 of Revelation. Revelation 1.18, where Christ says, verse 18, I am he that lives and was dead. So he emptied himself of the Godhead, came to earth, became a man, and he died. I'm, I'm the one. I live and I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. Okay? So he was, he, this is the one that lives, was dead, and is now alive forever. Chapter 5 of Revelation. Chapter 5 and verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb. So the focus here, the spotlight, is on the lamb. We're talking about the lamb stood a lamb as it had been slain. So he says, I'm the one that lives. I was dead. And it's not just that I, was, I just didn't die. I was slain. And now, behold, I'm alive forevermore. Okay, chapter 5. Spotlight is on the lamb. In the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb. 
They bent the knee and they fell down. It's very clear. You don't worship anybody but God. When John tried to worship the angel, the angel said, get up. Don't do that. Only worship God. Now these four and twenty elders, when the Lamb takes the book, they fell down before the Lamb. The Lamb is he that, it, that lives, died, was slain, and now lives forevermore. And when he took this book, they fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, odors which are the prayers of the saints. So they are worshipping Jesus Christ. Worshipping Jesus Christ. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. So here, every nation, because all these nations are coming into the covenant of Israel. And you have made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on earth. Again, difficult for the Greek mind. They want to go to heaven. God is coming to earth. We're going to reign on earth. And behold, I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand tens, ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Both God and the Lamb are being worshipped. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that lives forever and ever. Christ said, I am he that lives, that died, and lives forever and ever. And the elders are worshipping him. And you only worship God. Chapter 20 and verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests, notice, they shall be priests of God and of Christ. So, so they're not just priests of God, they're priests of God and of Christ. And priests basically facilitate the worship of God. So, so they'll facilitate the worship of God and Christ and reign with him a thousand years. Okay, let's quickly jump back to John 18. I've just got a few more verses to establish this. John 18 and verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, so he knew all things that were going to happen to him, went forth and said, Who are you looking for? Verse 5 of John 18. They answered him, We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto them, I am. You might have, I am he, and, but the he will be in italics. He didn't say he. He just said, I am. As in, I am that I am. As in, Yahweh. So he says to them, I am. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. So this Christ, when he said, I am, there was such power in, that, in those words that it knocked them over. This is God saying, I am that I am. I want to go to Isaiah 9. I really want to just cement this. And this is what any Unitarian 
I've never heard them address this scripture. And I'll ask any Unitarian to try to address this scripture. Isaiah 9. As if all the scriptures we looked at were not enough, it's clear that Christ is God. From the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But notice this in Isaiah 9 and verse 6. Isaiah 9, verse 6, a familiar scripture. For unto us, the us is Israel, nobody else, Israel. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. What does the next phrase say? The mighty God. Unto us a child is born, and his name shall be called the mighty God. Jesus Christ is God. The, and notice the next one, the everlasting Father. So now we've got to ask the Trinitarians to explain this one, because there's God the Father, and now there's Christ, whose name shall be the everlasting Father. How do we explain that? So now we've got two fathers. So let's, let's park that, because we're going to come back to that. But he is going to be called the mighty God, of the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end. It will just keep going. Upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Okay, so I think I've established that. We could, look at, we could look at Hebrews 7, which talks about Christ being Melchizedek, having no genealogy, that he has always been and will always be. And then there's all the scriptures where whenever the apostles are greeting the brethren, they greet them in the name of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that happened some 17 times. Okay. So the Unitarian view has a problem. And in fact, the Trinitarians, when they debate Unitarians, they crush the Unitarians. Because all they have to do is prove that Christ is God, and the Unitarians run out of steam. And it's very clear in the scriptures. What they don't do is prove that the Holy Spirit is God. So they win the debate by proving that Christ is God. But wait a minute. All you did was crush the Unitarian view. What you haven't done is prove that there is a Trinity. So they're quite clever in what they do. Now, what about the Binitarians? Maybe they're right. They're, or the Twinitarians. They're saying that there's two gods. There's God the Father and Christ. And they're both God. And they're equal. Okay. Let's go to John 10. I think we were here earlier. Go back to John 10. John 10 and verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. God the Father is greater than all. So this would challenge the Binitarian view or the Twinitarian view to say that God and Christ are equal. Christ is making it very clear, the Father is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. 
So yes, God and Christ are one, but they're not equal. Very clearly, the Father is superior to Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So God is superior to Christ, and the head of Christ, in the same way that the man is the head of the woman. Man is the head of the woman, Christ is the head of the man, God is the head of Christ. Very, very clear. They're not, they're, they're not equal. And in Ephesians 5, it goes on to talk about the relationship between a man and his wife, and that the man is the head of the wife. And then it concludes by saying, this is a great mystery. It's a great mystery. The relationship between a man and his wife is a great mystery. Because, Paul says, I speak concerning Christ and the church. In the same way that Christ is the head over the church, God is the head over, the Christ, over Christ. John 14. John 14 and verse 28. You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice. Because I said, I go unto the Father, notice this, for my Father is greater than I. He's my father. He's not my brother. So, you know, if we say Trinitarian, you know, we're twins. No, we're not brothers. He's the Father, and He's greater than I am. That we're not equal. John 8. John 8 and verse 28. Uh, then Jesus said unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am, and that I do nothing of myself. So I am, I am Yahweh, but I do nothing of myself. But as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. For I do always, always, all the time, those things that please the Father. I am subordinate to the Father. And I carry out his will. Not my will, his. I'm subordinate. Let's look at last scripture before we look at the true nature of God. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15. And let's begin in verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead. And notice this, he has become the first fruits of them that slept. So there is a correlation between Christ and everyone else that has died in the faith. He's the first fruits. So because if this is first fruit, we're going to have more fruit. So he's the first fruits of them that are asleep. So their fruit as well, their later fruit, he's the first fruits. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so Adam was very capable of causing us all to be cut off from God and all of us to sin, 
We now live apart from God. So every man sins. That's because of Adam. So the same way that every man sins and incurs the death penalty, the wages of sin is death, in the same way, in Christ, the same all shall be made alive. But every man in his own order. So there is a resurrection. Christ is the first one to be resurrected, representing that wave sheaf offering at the beginning of the Feast of Weeks. Then at the end of the Feast of Weeks, there is the spring harvest. This is when the saints come up in their order, in our order. And then there's the fall harvest, when the rest of the world has the opportunity to be resurrected. Each, everybody has the opportunity, but there's an order. Christ first, then the first fruits, then the rest of mankind. Each in his own order, through Christ. Then comes the end, when he shall delivered up, have delivered up the kingdom to God. So at the end now, after all of this is over, everything is delivered to Christ, every knee bows to Christ, all things come under Christ, and then he delivers the whole kingdom to God, even the Father. So the Father is above Christ. He, he, the Father, in resurrecting Christ, puts all things under Christ. But when everything comes under Christ, Christ then turns it over to the Father. And in fact, the Father is coming to earth. This earth that we're on right now will be burned up and purified, and then God the Father is coming to this earth. So I don't know where everybody thinks they're going when they die, but the Father is coming to earth, and we shall reign on earth, but each in his own order. So in the end, he will deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall put down all rule and all authority and power. Every knee will bow to him. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he, notice this, has put all things under his feet. He, God, the Father, has put all things under Yahweh's feet. But when he says all things are put under him, and we read that in Philippians. So when he says this, that all things are put under Christ, Yahweh, it's obvious that the Father is accepted. So the Father is the one saying that I'm putting everything under Christ. By saying I'm putting everything under Christ, I don't mean myself. It's obvious that I'm, ex I'm the exception. I'm the one who's putting everything under Christ. Christ is under me. The, the, the man is the head of the woman. Christ is the head of the man. And fa the Father is the head of Christ. So when I say I'm putting everything under Christ, obviously I'm accepting myself. It's obvious that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject, be subordinate unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Scripture is pretty clear. Pretty clear. Christ and the Father are not equal. Christ is subordinate to the Father. So what is the true nature of the Godhead? If it's clear that Christ and the Father are one and that Israel was interacting with Yahweh, but nobody knew the Father, Christ came to reveal the Father, to declare the Father. And it's clear that, well, we know the Trinitarian view is not even worth consideration. 
But the Binitarian view, saying that, well, God and Christ are two gods, you know, there's something there. But clearly, the Father is above Christ. Christ is subordinate to the Father. So what is this? Let's look at Colossians 1. Colossians 1. And verse 14 says, In whom, speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood. There's something about his blood that all of us can have redemption in it. Even the forgiveness of sins. So he is the perfect high priest that takes the perfect sacrifice to God so that all of us can have propitiation and forgiveness. He is the image of the invisible God. So if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. He's the image of the invisible God. Notice this, the firstborn of all creation. If there's a firstborn, then there must at least be a secondborn, maybe a thirdborn. But we know there's more than one because it, it doesn't say onlyborn. It says firstborn. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Again, he's the creator. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church. So again, it's a mystery. The marriage between man and woman is really speaking of the relationship between Christ and the church. And Christ is the head of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. This language is family language. God is a family. God is one family. A father and a son, that's a family relationship. God is a family. The son is marrying the church. That's a family relationship. So we've got a father, we've got a son, the son has a bride, a wife. Isaiah 9 says Christ will be called the everlasting father. A man and a woman have children. So the fall harvest are referred to as the children of the bride. So we are the first fruits with Christ. The fall harvest come in as our children. This is all family relationships. So the Godhead is a family. God is one family. When he says, who will go for us? It's a family, one, one family, a father and a son speaking. And here we see that he's the firstborn from the dead and that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. So he's the firstborn from the dead. We know that all the saints that have slept, they will be born from the dead as well. And each in his own order. Now let's go to Genesis 1. Genesis 1. Landon read this earlier. And after we wrap up these few scriptures, we'll have a bit of time for Q&A, and then, and then we'll wrap up. Um, Genesis 1 and verse 24. And God, Elohim, it's a plural, uniplural word. It's like you would say team or family, where you're talking about one, but there are multiple members within the one. 
God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature, notice this, after his kind. So there's a species that is going to reproduce after its kind. Cattle and creeping thing and the beast of the earth after its kind. And it was so. So these animals that are on earth will reproduce after their kind. So you'll notice that cows will have cows and dogs will have dogs and horses will have horses, each after its kind. Verse 26 or 25. And God made the beast of the earth after its kind and cattle after their kind and everything that creeps upon the earth after its kind. And God saw that it was good. So I hope we don't read over this because there's clearly a repetition here that in case you missed it the first time, it comes a second time, it comes a third time, it comes a fourth time for us to say, oh, I get it. All of these living creatures reproduce after their kind. Now, we, now that we got that, okay, got it. These species reproduce within their species after their kind. Now we come to verse 26. And Elohim said, let us, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. A pattern has been broken. Everything is reproducing after its kind, after its species. You've got the cattle kind, you've got the beast kind, and then it would be a, a, a flagrant violation for us to say after that, there's mankind. There's no such thing as mankind. There's beast kind, and then there's God kind. God says, let us make man after our kind. And so he created man, male and female, after the God kind. There's nothing here that says, let's make man after mankind. The same way we create the beast after the beast kind, let's make man after mankind. No. Let's ma let us make man in our image, after our kind. And then, once they're made in our likeness and image, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over, the, over these kinds, these animal kinds. So they're made after their own kind. We're going to make man after our kind. And then we're going to let man have dominion over these other kinds so that they can be like us. So, after they agreed, Elohim made man, created man, in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So, you know, if, if Satan was watching this, he would see these animals made after the animal kind. And then he would see God get down on the earth and with his hands form a man that looks just like God. And then breathe life into this thing and watch it animate, get up. And it looks just like God. It is made after the God kind. Not angel kind, not animal. You know, I heard a, one of these Unitarians actually was saying, this let us is God speaking to the angels. 
So he's speaking to the angels and saying, let us make man after our kind. Makes no sense. Have you ever read some of the descriptions of the angels? You know, four heads, one with a lion, one... No, this being is made to look like God and be like God. And God blessed them. So, so we see a couple of things here. Made after the God kind, dominion over the animal kind, and then God blesses them and says to them, be fruitful and multiply. So there's a reproductive process that is patterned after the God kind. So dominion is patterned after the God kind. The image and appearance is after the God kind. And reproduction is after the God kind. This is a great mystery when I speak about a man and a woman being married, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Let's go to Revelation 3. Revelation 3 and verse 9. So we know when we were in Revelation earlier, John was forbidden to worship the angel. Forbidden. And yet we see the four and twenty elders worshipping the Lamb, worshipping Christ. We only worship God. But notice this in Revelation 3 and verse 9. Speaking of man made after the God kind, Christ is now speaking to men. men. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews. So they say they're my people. But they're not. They're liars. They do lie. Behold, I will make them come and worship before your feet. So there are some human beings that are true Jews. And God is saying to them, don't worry about those false Jews who say that they're my people, but they're really not. They're lying. Because I'm going to take them and I'm going to bring them in front of you and they're going to worship you. So something is going on here where God says, doesn't the scripture say you are gods? Why is it so fantastic for us to believe the word of God? That man is made after the God kind. And the God kind is a family. So God tells man, reproduce, because that's like us. We are in the process of reproduction. And I'm a father, I have a son, the son is going to marry the church, and they're going to have children. And then Christ will be called the everlasting father. I'm just reading the scriptures. Just reading the scriptures. There's no heaven, there's no let's go to heaven and play a harp and and think, you know, look at God as he has thought, thinking about himself, thinking. And, And we'll just love to just watch him doing that. This Greek philosophical nonsense, we've got to knock it out of our head because the scripture says that God the father is coming to earth. And he's setting up a kingdom on earth that when everything is subjected to Christ, Christ will turn everything over to the Father. And we will sit on thrones with Christ as his bride as we bring the rest of humanity into the family of God. So Christ is not, the Unitarian view saying Christ is not God is not true. Christ is God. The Father and Christ are one. They're a family. And the Godhead is open. There are many that are being brought into glory, into the Godhead. So we we don't know how many beings will be in the Godhead. It'll always be one family. Always be one. Look at your own family. Some of you are grandparents. Some of us might be great-grandparents. Some of us just parents. All of us are children. 
families keep, you know, says, of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. It'll just keep increasing and increasing and increasing. And we will call Christ the everlasting father because he's reproducing himself. And so people are going to come and worship us who are the true Jews. I'll come and make them worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Okay, verse 12. He that overcomes, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go no more out and I will write upon him the name of my God. So my children are my children and they have my name. We will have God's name on us and we can say we are God and we are one because there's one name for the family. We are one. I'll write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. We'll be marrying Christ. Hebrews 2, we'll just quickly look at verse um, verse 8. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, speaking of Christ, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So he was in the Godhead. He's made lower than angels so that he can die for every man. For it became him, verse 10 of chapter 2, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. Notice this, in bringing many sons unto glory. Many, many sons are going to be brought unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So Christ is the first of the first fruits, but he's bringing many unto glory. So we will follow. Verse 12, saying, I will declare your name unto my brothers. So Christ is the son of God and we will be his brothers, meaning we will also be sons of God. It's a family. God is a family. I will declare your name unto my brethren in the midst of the church. I will sing praise to you. And then John 3, John 3, chapter 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night. He didn't want to be spotted, but he saw that Jesus had something and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again. So the scripture says he's the firstborn from the dead. Now he's saying, unless you also are born from the dead, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I know we have people running around saying, I'm born again, I'm born again. Not according to the scriptures. Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That is a, that is a scriptural fact. And Christ is saying you have to die and then you need to be born from the dead the same way I am. I'm first born from the dead. I'm first. You have to follow. And when you're born from the dead, a second, if you're born now, you've got to be born from the dead, then you can inherit the kingdom of God. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? So I've already been born. I'm an old man now. How can I be born again? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Jesus answered, and he doesn't answer and say, you know, if you accept me, uh, accept me as Lord, then you're born again. Presto magic. No. He says, okay, I want you to understand what it means to be born again. Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, so the baptism and receiving of the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. This word is pneuma. And it's important that he use the word pneuma because the Greeks think that spirit has nothing to do with the material world. But pneuma is like the wind. It's here on the material world, the material plane. So you're born of flesh, you're flesh. You're born of pneuma, you're pneuma. Do not marvel that I say you must be born again. The wind blows where it wants and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it came from or where it's going. This is how everyone is that is born of the, of the pneuma. So later on you'll see that Christ just, after the resurrection, Christ just appeared. They were afraid of the Jews, they locked the doors, and Christ just walked through a wall and appeared because he was born of the Spirit, first born from the dead. And he makes it clear that when we're born from the dead, we will be like this. And we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, in fact, let's just jump there. 1 Corinthians 15 again. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 35. But some men will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? You fool. could say, you idiot. You Greek philosophical fool, imbecile. You think you're so spiritual, but you know nothing. That which you sow is not brought to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you sow not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as it has pleased him, as it pleases him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. There's one kind of flesh of men, another of beasts, another of fish, another of birds. So also are the celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. The glory of the celestial is one. The glory of the terrestrial is another. So that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of pneuma is pneuma. There is a glory of the flesh. You see people who work out every day of their life, and, and you look and you say, wow, that, that guy or that lady looks great. But you, know, you see them 10 years later, and they're sick, and they look decrepit. So there is a glory of the physical, but there's a glory of the spiritual, and it's not the same. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon. Then verse 42, this is also like the resurrection from the dead. So Christ is the firstborn from the dead. This is also like the resurrection. It's sown in corruption. So, you know, people have diseases, they have sicknesses, we have problems, but we continue to build Christ's character. And as we build Christ's character, we're sowing our next body. We will never be disembodied. It's this body, and then it's the next body. But we will always have a body, which the Greeks had to get in their head. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown in natural body, soma psychikos. It's raised a pneumatic body, soma pneumatikos. Pneuma, what Christ said, like the wind. You just feel it and you know it went by, but you can't see it. You don't know where it came from, you don't know where it's going. That's how everybody is when they're born from the dead. They have a new body. It's a pneumatic body. Christ has it. We will have it. And we will be in God's family. And we will be God. And those who say they're Jews and they're forcing everybody to accept the Trinitarian doctrine, 
they will come and they will worship before us and see that God is a family. And there's no limit to how big this family can be. But we will all carry God's name. John, 1 John 3, 1. We'll just a couple of scriptures and then we'll wrap up. Two more scriptures. John 3, 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. Beloved, now we are the sons of God and it does not yet appear what we shall be. So there's one glory of the terrestrial, there's another glory of the celestial. And we sow in, in corruption that which cannot be corrupted. But we're, we're, we're not quite clear what it's all going to look like. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he, Christ, shall appear, we shall be like him. He's the firstborn from the dead. We're next. For we shall see him as he is. And every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. And then let me just conclude in Romans 8. Romans 8. Romans 8 and verse 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead. So Christ is the firstborn from the dead. He was dead for three days and three nights. And the Father raised him up through the power of his Spirit. If the Spirit that raised him up from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwells in you. So people say they are Jews, but they are not. So if this Spirit is not in them, when Christ returns, nothing's going to happen. There's no transformation. The transformation will only occur if the spirit that raised up Christ and made him firstborn from the dead, if that is in us, then when Christ returns, we shall see him as he is and we will be changed to be like him. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you, through the spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. So we follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit to overcome the promptings of the flesh. Verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And this, by the way, by the way is the definition of a Christian. It's not somebody who can recite the Athanasian Creed. It's not somebody who doesn't understand what Trinity means but says, okay, I take it on faith. That's not the definition of a Christian. The definition of a Christian is right here. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Father, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Family language. We're the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ.
God says, I'm going to give everything to Christ. And Christ says, I'm going to marry you. And you can be a joint heir with me. Everything that I inherit, I'll give to you. This is the scripture. This is what it says. So that, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Because I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There is a glory coming to us. And, and everything in this world, nothing compared to what's coming. For the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. Family language. God is a family. And the whole creation is groaning and waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. People don't know it. They look at you and they look at, I, at me and we just look like everybody else. But if the Spirit of God is in us, when Christ returns, we shall be transformed and we will be just like him. And the whole universe is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God, the family of God. For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. These guys are searching the whole universe for life, and all they see is vanity. And the whole universe is waiting in vanity. There's nothing happening. It's waiting for the manifestation of the family of God. Because the creation itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. This is family language. God is a family. And when we're born from the dead, Christ is the firstborn from the dead, when we're born from the dead into God's family, there's going to be a glory that can't even be articulated. And the whole creation is waiting for this glory. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. If there's first fruits, then there's at least second fruits. And again, if we know the holy day plan of God, we are the first fruits. The rest of the world is waiting for us. We don't condemn them. We don't say, if you don't sign this creed, you're going to burn in hell. No, we love them. And we have to go through this so that we can bring them into the family and Christ can be called the Everlasting Father. So brethren, let me stop there and let's have a little bit of discussion. But hopefully it's very clear that Trinitarianism is just... I, 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 I won't even... No comment. That uh, Unitarianism is closer. At least I can say Unitarians are looking into the scriptures and they see very clearly a, monotheist, a monotheism theme. And so, uh, you know, I, I take my hat off to the, to the Unitarians. But to deny Christ is to deny salvation. So we only have salvation because Christ is God. But then to say that there's the Father and Christ and that's it, and they're equal, that's completely wrong. Christ is above, or, or Christ is under the Father, and it's a family relationship, and we shall marry Christ and be under the Father, and we shall have children, and Christ shall be called the everlasting Father, the mighty God. So brethren, hopefully that's clear, but happy to answer any questions. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. 
we hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.